Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to another episode of The Dispatches. It's great to be back with you again. If you're not already a subscriber to this podcast, then whatever platform you're listening on right now, why not hit that little subscribe or follow button? That way you'll be kept up to date about every single new episode that we publish. And as an added bonus, if you want to get an extra episode of The Dispatches every single week, so that's an extra four to five episodes every single month, then why not become a patron of Left Foot Media at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. The link is in the show notes for today. And if you contribute $5 or more per month, then you will get exclusive access every week to a special episode of The Dispatches that is only published for our supporters at Patreon. So a huge thank you to all of our patrons, by the way. It's thanks to you that today's episode was made possible. And speaking of today, let's get into today's topic of conversation. I've been umming and ahhing about the title of this episode. I was originally thinking of calling it Without a Moral Conscience, We Are Destined to Become More Like China. And then I sort of started umming and ahhing, and then I thought, well, maybe a better title might be uh, The Real Danger with the Ring of Power is Those Who Think They Can Wield It for Good. <laughs> and so you'll see what I mean by that as we as we get into this episode. Uh, first of all, I have to start with a caveat, and it's kind of frustrating that I have to do this, but as you know from one of my very first episodes of this podcast, we are in a pandemic of false dichotomies at the moment. And what that means is people are seeing this falsely through a false binary, a black and white narrative, uh, as if there's only two options on the table. Uh, you know, you're either with me or you're against me. Uh, so I want to make it clear I am not anti-vaccination, I'm not anti-COVID vaccines, I have no problem with people making making a free and, and uh, consented choice to be vaccinated with the current vaccinations. Uh, my personal position is that I want a good, safe, reliable and ethically sourced and manufactured vaccine for COVID-19. Um, so just, yeah, I just want to make that clear because invariably what happens is people will assume that if you're going to raise questions about it, in this case, um, we're going to be talking a bit about forced vaccination mandates, that somehow that, that makes you an anti-vaxxer. Uh, it, it's not true at all and it's just nonsense. And I, I think it's important that we do our best to keep our head out of those false dichotomies and those false binaries that, that are just so destructive and corrupting of this important public conversation, and it is a public conversation. We are not serfs or slaves of the state, a small group of cabinet members and technocrats who, who will tell us how to live. We are a community of persons all journeying and travelling together uh, in a nation or a culture or a society, and so this is a hugely important conversation and we should all be part of that conversation. So with that in mind, let's just jump into today's episode uh, one of the interesting things about The Lord of the Rings, and this is why I was mentioning, mentioning The Lord of the Rings earlier as a possible title for today's show, is that we, we recognize in that story that the ring of power is this thing of great evil, and it's a great threat, uh, especially if it ends up in the hands of Sauron. And we sort of, we, we, we read the books or we watch the movies and we go, oh yes, that's very dangerous and that would be a very bad thing. And it's a, this amazing story about a struggle between good versus evil. And we think there's sort of a very clear line in the sand, if you like. But often what happens is we miss the second and possibly even more powerful danger that's at work throughout that story. 
And that is the danger of good people who think that they can take the ring and use it for the greater good, that they can take the ring and they can achieve good outcomes and that they will be immune to its corrupting influences or that somehow they are infallible and so it would be okay if they wield this kind of power. There's great danger in this uh, throughout the whole story, the whole saga of the Lord of the Rings. In fact, there's an interesting moment in the story where at one point Frodo early on is admonished by Gandalf because he suggests that perhaps you know it would have been better off and there wouldn't have been this problem if if uh, Gollum had you know just been killed. And Gandalf admonishes him for that and says, "No, no, that's not our way. You know, who are you to sort of wield the power of life and death?" And then it, it, that same theme of the end justifies the means. It, it it comes back later on, later in the story, when Frodo has to ad- admonish Sam for a similar kind of thing when. When Sam is talking about abandoning Gollum to death, and and Frodo has to remind him that no, this is not what good people do. The end does not justify the means. It's actually quite an important theme in that story. And this all relates to this question of the mandate that was announced on Monday by our government that they are now enacting a forced vaccination mandate for all teachers and education workers, so people working in the education sector, and they are claiming that this is being done to protect children. We'll talk more about that particular issue in a moment, but there are some big problems with this, and they are they are serious. So the first problem is the fact that this is immoral. What, what's being proposed here is not morally good. The notion of forced vaccinations, there is a, there's a very... Uh, small, and I've previously talked about this, that what I think are eight criteria that have to absolutely be met before you can say that a forced vaccination mandate would be a morally acceptable thing. And at the, in the current situation, there's several of those criteria that are not met. And so there's a very narrow bandwidth in which you could say that a forced vaccination mandate would be a morally acceptable thing to do. And I think what we've got here with vaccinating teachers and all education staff has stepped well outside that very narrow bandwidth. So there's a serious moral problem here. We're failing to respect the dignity of those human persons. We are failing to respect the dignity of rational adult human beings and their legitimate right to choose whether or not they will participate in a particular medical therapy. And what's happened is the cabinet and a small group of technocrats have taken that away from those people and have said, no, we will decide for you. You will be forced into doing this. Otherwise, if you don't do it, you will be sacked. You will lose your job. And there's a very, very serious moral problem with that. Number two problem with this mandate are the practical issues. So even if you're someone who says, well, I'm morally okay with doing this, you need to stop and consider the practical flaws in this particular plan. So first of all, and again, let me make this clear, no one is disputing the efficacy of vaccines at an individual level to actually prevent the severity or reduce the severity in most cases, or in in a a lot of cases, to reduce the severity, the chances of hospitalisation and uh, death in people who are fully vaccinated. Now, fully vaccinated people still do get COVID, they still do end up in hospital and they still do die. 
So all of those things do happen, but the vaccine definitely reduces the risk of those things happening. So that's a personal health benefit, that's a personal medical benefit that you get personally from the vaccine. Now there is a flow on effect from this, and it's an important flow on effect, that if we have less people who are overcrowding a hospital system with COVID, then there is a health benefit, there is a public safety benefit in that as well. And so that's definitely a factor that needs to be considered here, or, or certainly needs to be considered when you think about vaccinations. Uh, the data from overseas is interesting. In other countries where now they've got the majority of their people vaccinated, they are now still seeing uh, um, people in hospitals, high numbers of people who are fully vaccinated. It's certain that probably there would be a lot more than that if they didn't have the widespread vaccination. But the, the, the question for New Zealanders is, I mean, just how equipped are we, even if we had everyone vaccinated and there would still be people who are fully vaccinated who would still end up in our hospital system? Are we equipped for, for even that level of overload? I'm not sure. Um, smarter minds than I can probably answer that question. But the thing is, this forced mandate for teachers has, has not at all uh, been done for that reason. Uh, and that for, this forced mandate on teachers has, we've been told, is because the government is now classifying children as a vulnerable group in this COVID-19 pandemic, and they're claiming that this is being done to protect New Zealand children. Okay, so let's unpack that strategy a little bit and think about the logic of this. First of all, a fully vaccinated person can still catch and transmit COVID-19. Uh, so th these vaccines are not sterilizing vaccines. And so what that means is there is still a reasonable, reasonable degree of transmission that goes on amongst uh, fully vaccinated people. So fully vaccinated people can still catch and transmit the virus. So that's point number one. If you're claiming this is a, this is a, a safety measure intended to create a firewall of some kind for children. Secondly, and this is really important, children are actually the least vulnerable group in this pandemic. Children, in fact, there's, there was a study published a couple of months ago, uh, I think it was in July, late in July, and, and, and the wording used that I saw was uh, that it is exceedingly rare for children to die of COVID-19. Children have a very mild and short-term dose of COVID-19. It's like a common cold, apparently, that lasts a few days. They are the lowest risk group for long COVID. They are the lowest risk group. They, they just almost, so, so minimal in hospital resource statistics, like appearing in hospitals, that they're practically non-existent. And they are the lowest risk group for dying of COVID-19 as well. So they're actually the safest demographic of all. They are not our vulnerable uh, population. Our vulnerable population are elderly, people who are obese, people with comorbidities, etc. That's those are the real vulnerable groups here. Uh, so the children, the children that we're supposedly trying to protect here, are our least vulnerable group. And here's the really important bit: uh, in this situation, what you're talking about doing is uh, vaccinating the staff and you know the education staff, teachers and others who work in schools, and any parent helpers must be vaccinated as well. And then you're claiming that this is actually going to protect children. Well. How? Because think about this, your child goes to school and the least amount of interaction they have will be, each day will be with a teacher or teachers. 
the majority, the overwhelming of majority of, of, of interaction they will have every single day is with other children. And that interaction is going to be far more intimate and hands-on. That's just how children are. And it's going to be far more um, risky because they're going to have less caution. That's just Again, that's just what children, how children are. It's just no judgment here. That's just the reality of, of children. They're going to be less capable because of their psychological and brain development of, 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 of consistently following uh, safety protocols. They, they are, they're more likely to actually violate, violate those protocols. And again, it's just part of life, just what children do. And so they, your child is actually at greater risk of child-to-child transmission because they are associating with a whole large group of other people who either are not or cannot, because they're too young, be vaccinated. And apparently we're being told that if we force a minority of people in that setting, the teachers and staff, to get vaccinated, and they are the minority in that group each day, that somehow that will create a firewall for our children. Like I said the other day on social media, in actual fact, the real risk here is to teachers. Teachers are at greater risk of catching things from their students than students are of catching it from an individual teacher. So it's actually the risk is, is goes the other way when you stop and think about it. In fact, as I'm saying this and the words are coming out of my mouth, it just dawned on me, hold on, where is the data and the research to back this policy? Where is the research showing that there is a serious risk here for teacher-to-child transmission and that mass vaccination or forced vaccination will bring an end to that risk? Where is that data? I mean, maybe it exists, I don't know, but it just dawned on me, this is, we're supposed to be doing this, you know, this brand new evidence-based data-driven policy. And, and, and when you see incidents like this, you realize, yeah, no, that, that's not what's going on here. I'm not really sure what's going on here. I suspect it's, well, you know, I, I guess it's people who are in a blue funk. They're in a blind panic. They're desperate to try and solve a crisis. And they're just chucking anything at the wall and saying anything they have to about that particular strategy. And then there's one more factor that needs to be considered here, and that is the fact that we've known for a very long time, the research has been very clear about this, that you always get better vaccine uptake without coercion. And so coercive practices, punishment practices, are not actually good things at all if you want a good level of vaccine uptake. The research is extremely clear about that. And not just that, but in this situation where you are literally sacking people, you are depriving them of an income, you are interfering actively with their ability to, to, to feed their families in their chosen profession. The, the, the long-term ramifications of this are serious. You, you, you want to talk about eroding public trust? That won't end when the pandemic ends, if this is how you conduct yourself. It just won't. It will, it will do huge damage to that. And not only that, but I think there's actually a high probability here that large numbers of teachers who don't want to be forced into a medical treatment that they haven't consented to will just simply resign and will, will, will be forced out of their jobs. And if those teachers can't find work in, in the teaching profession uh, and or maybe in other industries where they might be suitably qualified where this isn't a, a mandate, then you may, all you may end up doing is just transferring a whole lot of people into uh, unemployment status or into low-paid uh, or you know low-skilled, low-paid work, and and you know, and then creating a teacher shortage at the other end. Um, I, I think there's a whole lot of. To me, I just look at this and I, I see it as madness. 
because here's the thing, a, a compromise could have been reached here. And it's, it's just, it doesn't, this totalitarian authoritarianism, it doesn't make any sense because a simple compromise could have been reached. You could have said, we're mandating for all teachers to get vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated, then you simply have to have a weekly COVID test. That would have solved the problem with none of this draconian overreach, none of this excessive and I would say completely unacceptable totalitarianism or authoritarianism, maybe if people don't like that word. Uh, it's it's just it's it's an immoral and and it's an overreaction to this particular situation. Now, people have been challenging me on this point. Uh, well, not one person in particular threw a comment at me on social media the other day. I should let me clarify. <laughs> people have been challenging me. One person threw a comment at me on the other the other day on social media, and a couple of people liked it. And and this person said, "This isn't forced. They don't have a gun to their head. They're not being forced to do this." Well, <laughs> let's stop and think about what's wrong with that statement. First of all they do actually have a metaphorical gun to their head. And the metaphorical gun to their head is this. If you don't get this vaccine, we will sack you and you will no longer have an income. I mean, that's a pretty serious metaphorical gun to your head. It, it really, in the, in the list of threats that you could make to coerce a person, to force a person to do something, that one is right up there. It is right up there. <laughs> you know, just because someone is not being threatened with death or with imprisonment, I think this is one of the great mistakes we make in the modern era is to think that, well, you know, just because the threat doesn't involve some really, really extreme measure, I think it is extreme, by the way, to sack a person, but even more extreme than that, you know, just because it doesn't involve, um, you know, a threat of imprisonment or a threat of uh, being shot and killed if you don't do it, that that's not a forced vaccination. That, that, that's simply not correct. And secondly, imagine the situation of an immoral employer who was sexually assaulting his employees. And let's imagine that he got called before the courts to give an account for an accusation of sexual assault against one of his secretaries. And he turned around and said, no, I didn't, I didn't force her to have sex with me. No, this was, this was consensual. I just called her into my office one night and I told her that if she didn't have sex with me, then I would sack her, I would fire her, and then I would make sure that she couldn't be employed uh, in this profession, in this industry, and, or in, in the role of secretary uh, in any other job in town. Uh, but, but, but I didn't force her. I mean, she consented to having sex with me at that point. Um, I, I think you would rightly say, uh, no, that's not consent. That is not consent, and a person is definitely being coerced there, and in fact, there is a serious degree of force that has been applied to that person and, and so it's just nonsense to say that these people are not being forced. They are. If they don't do it, they lose their job. Now, there's a temptation, I think, too, for some people to perhaps fall into a bit of a false dichotomy here and think, well, what's the other option? Uh, Brendan, are you some sort of, you know, libertarian? Are you some sort of, you know, radical autonomy doctrine guy? Are you into radical individualism? No, no, I'm not. Because the opposite of radical individualism is not, I surrender my conscience and my whole self to the will of the state. Or in this case, I must surrender my conscience and my reasoning and my whole person uh, over to a small group of people, the cabinet and some technocrats who are advising them. That's not the opposite of radical individualism. So, so that's a false dichotomy to think, well, you know, it's either forced vaccinations or some sort of um, dangerous radical 
individualism, some sort of extreme libertarianism. That, that those two things are not the only two options on the table here. The, the opposite of, of radical individualism and the healthy place to be is to recognize that the human person exists in community and is made for community. Without the community, I do not fully flourish as a human person. I cannot understand the I as an I am Brendan Malone. I, I cannot understand self without the other. I cannot love without the other. If I don't have an other, another person, to give myself to in acts of self-giving love, I can never love, and without love, I can never fully flourish. So I need a community. So the opposite of radical individualism is to recognize the common good and the fact that the human person exists within community. But here's the thing that often gets missed in all of this, is that that without individuals who freely give of themselves to the community, to be in community, so actually consent and choose to be in community with others, then you can't have a community. So what that means is you've got a tension here that goes both ways, that a healthy vision of human anthropology and human society recognizes that you have need of both community and you have need of both freely choosing individuals to give rise to communities. You have two things that have to be kept in tension here. And what that means is that you have to think about rights and responsibilities. Now, whenever we hear that term rights and responsibilities, what we generally hear is in reference to individuals. So the individual has rights, but they also have responsibilities to others. And that is absolutely true. But what we can forget is that that goes both ways. So the individual has rights and responsibilities, but the community also has rights and it also has responsibilities towards its individual members and in the way that it interacts with them and the way that it treats them. And if you hold that tension in place, so in other words, the individual must never stomp all over the community as a radical individualist, and the community must never stomp all over legitimate exercises of freedom on the part of the individual. It's both and, not either or. And, and holding that tension in place is how you avoid two extremes, two evils. On the one end is the evil of radical individualism, at the other end is the evil of collectivism, which is where you no longer have a community, you now have a collective, and the will, the group, becomes dominant over every individual. So communism is a great example. Socialism is another great example of collectivism. And these are mistakes, these are errors, these are evils which fail to respect and, and hold true to the point that the community has obligations to its individual members as well as individual members having obligations back the other way towards the community and how they conduct themselves. And so what you've got with this forced vaccination mandate here is you have got a form of collectivism. You, you have got a form of statism. It's, it's, and it's hard to even call that in a sense because it's really 
it's agents of the state in this case. A very small group of people have decided to do this. A tiny group of people. The Prime Minister and some Cabinet members and some technocrats who are advising them have decided that they will force all New Zealand teachers to be vaccinated, to undergo a medical therapy without their personal conscience choosing that therapy, without any informed consent, or they will be sacked. They, these people are now interfering with their ability to, uh, to be gainfully employed, to make a living in the profession that they have chosen. And I would argue that's a very, very serious violation of a person's legitimate human rights and freedoms. It's a failure to respect the human dignity of those particular members of our community. It's a very different situation if you say to someone, well, we've got a policy here and any new people who want to come and work with us, this is the policy that you have to meet. But it's a very, very different equation altogether when you say to a group of people, we are now going to impose this new mandate and we will sack you if you don't do what we tell you to do here. And, you, and what we're telling you to do here is to undergo a medical therapy that you have not consented to. And it's not just New Zealand where we're seeing this, by the way. This is happening all over the West. Right now in America, there is a huge, a huge public controversy, debate, kerfuffle going on over this very issue. Biden, Joe Biden, desperately trying to force people into vaccination all over the place. This is not just a New Zealand problem, which brings me to, to a thesis that really sort of was the impetus for this episode, and that is that without a moral conscience, we are destined to become more like China in the West. If, you know, and why? Well, because without moral conscience, without a good, clear moral compass that dictates how your leaders conduct themselves when they are leading you, then what happens is the ring of power takes over. That, that you all of a sudden they start thinking, yeah, but if I wield this power, I'm doing it for good. I'm different from those other evil people. I'm wielding power and coercion against people because I'm building a better world. That's the danger in the ring of power. And, 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 and so when you look at China, China has might makes right. The state forces, and it's just truly evil what China does to its citizens. In China, it is might makes right. And here's the thing. You can actually do a lot of things by forcing people to do them, by punishing them in severe ways. Imprisonment, loss of job, loss of social status, you know, threat of execution, whatever the, the serious punishment is. But if you wield that power against people, hey, you can get a lot of things done very quickly and very effectively. It's very, very tempting. And the only thing that keeps that power in check is to have good virtuous leaders who have moral character and enough moral fortitude to say, no, we don't do that because we are a moral people and we respect the dignity of our citizens. And so we don't do certain things to them out of respect for that dignity. The only thing that keeps that ring of power in check is virtue. And that's the only thing that stops that excess. But if you don't have a solid moral uh, compass and you don't have a sense of a moral conscience in your nation and in within your leadership circles, then you're in real trouble because that's the only thing that keeps that evil in check. And it just seems to me that it's it's only logical that you are just going to end up looking more like China because leaders are just going to be attracted and drawn to that kind of power. 
And the only thing that will hold them back from that is if they make a willing choice because they know and understand that power is not actually something that they should just seek out and use and wield without consideration for the moral implications of the way in which they're wielding that power, how they are wielding that power. And and the, the sad reality is that in this country here in New Zealand, our moral compass is broken. We don't have clear moral principles that are actually guiding our nation. How do I know that? Well, let's have a listen to this clip. This is our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who's being interviewed on a breakfast TV show uh, last year and is asked specifically about the issue of forced vaccination. So let's have a listen to that clip together. You, in this country, have sanctions against people who don't take or aren't vaccinated against no, we haven't done that because actually when you look at the levels of vaccination we managed to reach in New Zealand, mm. they are high. Um, people talk about uh, anti-vaxxers. It's actually the bigger issue in New Zealand is more of what Dr Bloomfield calls vaccination hesitancy. It's mm. not people who are over, you know, strongly morally opposed. It's more people who just need a bit of extra support, remove the barriers, a bit of more information. But no penalties if you don't? I see no reason to do that. We get up over well over 90% for our vaccinations without that, and I believe we will for this. That, my friends, is a clear and stark example of how the ring of power corrupts. Because at some point in this whole process, our Prime Minister has lied. It's very clear that she's lied or she's been corrupted and is now doing something that she knows is not a good thing to be doing. So like she even admits in that interview that there's no need for this because New Zealand has a high rate of vaccination uptake already, well over 90%. So why? Why would you do this? As I said, I think the, the, the corrupting influence here is fear and panic and people in a blue funk who are desperate. And, and I'm, I'm not surprised. One of the, the prime minister's own advisors, so-called expert advisors, was in the media just this past weekend saying how panicked and freaked out they were. So is it any surprise if she's got panicked advisors who just don't have control and calm about all of this? that we now find ourselves in this situation. But unfortunately, this has been brewing for a while. Uh, we, for example, in New Zealand, we before the pandemic, or just as the pandemic hit, actually, we passed an extreme piece of abortion legislation that came directly from the Prime Minister. It was one of her pet projects, introduced abortion up to birth, and according to the legal experts, if you can find an abortionist who's willing to do it even during birth, if you wanted to, and that extreme law was passed as we were heading into a pandemic. It was a pet project of our Prime Minister. That law is a perfect example of might makes right, where the vulnerable are stripped of all rights and subjugated to the force of the more powerful. And here's the thing that is just so, I guess, guiding about what's happened on Monday is that all through this pandemic, abortion has been classed as an essential service. So on the one hand, if you're a teacher, you can't actually make a legitimate refusal to around bodily autonomy, which is I don't submit, I don't consent to a particular medical therapy. But at the same time, you could go and end the life of an unborn child 
under the guise of my body, my choice in this pandemic. How is that ethically consistent? It's not. It's just not at all. We've also seen for many years now the erosion of conscience rights for medical professionals who don't want to participate, whether it's in things like abortion or euthanasia now in our country. And there's been this erosion of these rights. And more and more, there is this demand that they must participate in the moral actions of others. But the point is, I think for a while now, we, we, this, this problem has been brewing in the West. Um, it, it's, it, there's, a, there's a loss of a solid moral framework, and so that makes us extremely vulnerable to the ring of power. And, and what I see happening with this teacher's mandate is yet another escalation of this, it's the latest sort of variation of this theme of might makes right, of what we just do what we need to. The end justifies the means. There's a real danger in this, and, and the danger is not just the moral danger, but the, the ongoing danger here, because history tells us that these behaviours become endemic. They become precedent with governments. It's not like they just stop doing things once the crisis is over. There's a tendency to hold on to power and to keep using it, because you think, well, we've done this once, and it achieved a good outcome. Let's keep using this mechanism. That generally tends to be the historical norm. In fact, there's a there's a, an infamous court case. It should be more widely known. I guess in legal circles it probably is, but it should be more widely known at a popular level, and that is the court case in the UK, Wilcock versus Muckle, and a, a court case that happened after World War II, where during World War II in the United Kingdom, and obviously they're in a state of emergency, a state of crisis. So they institute compulsory identity cards for all citizens. You've got to carry identity papers and identity card on you at all times. Now, the war ended, the crisis over, but the government didn't give up that power. In fact, they said, no, let's keep them. We should keep these. And so they kept them. And then in 1950, five years after the emergency is over, a guy called Harry Wilcock is caught speeding. He's pulled over by a police officer and he's asked to produce his ID card, and he says, no, I don't do that. The state of emergency is over. I'm, I'm a free citizen of this country. You can't demand an identity card from me. There's no justification for that. Now, of course, he got in a lot of trouble, and this turns into a court case. It goes all the way through the, uh, the, the British legal system. And his argument was this. His argument was the state of emergency has now ended. So therefore, there is no justification for the government to keep wielding this power. So, so it's wrong what happened to me. It is wrong to have police officers asking citizens for identity cards. Now, the courts, they dismissed him without any further charge, but they, they disagreed with him. The courts, the justices said, no, you're wrong. They said, sure, the state of emergency has ended, but the state does have the power to keep doing this. And I think it's an important warning lesson from history that we should all take note of. You see, what's happening right now really does matter. Because we are building a world right now that we will live in post-pandemic. This is one of those serious moments. This is not a minor little shift where, you know, the deck chairs are sort of being rearranged just a little bit. This is a massive shift that, that is undergoing and it's happening globally as well. And out the other side of it, there are going to be impacts in the way societies are structured and governance and things are done and healthcare and all these kinds of things some for better and some for worse. 
And I would say to you, if we're not willing to actually say, look, I've drawn my line in the sand and I don't believe it is morally good to actually be forcing teachers to submit to a medical therapy that they haven't actually given their consent to. I don't think that's a good thing at all. And I don't think it's necessary. So why are you even doing this? As the Prime Minister herself acknowledges, in New Zealand, we have high vaccination uptake. So why would you do this? This is the corrupting influence of the ring of power again. It blinds you and it corrupts you. And you think the whole while, I'm doing a good thing. I'm doing a great thing. I'm making the world better. In actual fact, your vision, your sight has been corrupted by the wielding of this power, this great power. It's very serious, the power that is being wielded right now by our government in this pandemic. So as this new world is being built and we come out the other side of this crisis and we find ourselves in a, in a new type of landscape, don't be surprised if you find yourself in a situation, whether it's some months or some years from now, thinking, how the heck did we get into this situation? You know that old Talking Heads song? You may ask yourself, how did all this happen? <laughs> right? The Judeo-Christian natural law position is, is pretty clear. It rejects consequentialism. It rejects the claim that the outcome justifies the means you use to achieve that outcome. No, it, it rejects that utterly. Your outcome is one factor in moral decision-making. But so is your intention and your means. The action that you choose to engage in to achieve your outcome. And if you use an evil or an immoral means to achieve a good outcome, you've still done an immoral thing. It was still evil, even if you get the good outcome. Informed consent does not exist under coercion. Informed consent cannot exist under coercion. In fact, I know of at least one case already where a person in the education sector in this country does not consent to the vaccine, but because they have no other means of feeding their family and paying their mortgage, they are having to get vaccinated. That is not informed consent. And anyone with a functioning moral compass should look at that and be worried by that. I think the reason that not more of us, or there's certainly a group of people, I suspect what's happening is this. There's a vocal group of us who are saying this isn't right, and we're in a smaller, a much smaller group. Then I think there is a, 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 um, a group, another group who are just going along with it because their moral compass is not, for, for whatever reason, there's a bit of magnetism in the air probably, but a fear. But if you're in a state of psychological siege and you've been in this sort of hostage mentality for a while and your, your true north gets a little bit skew off. And so there's probably people, there are people in that sort of situation, I know there are because I've seen them, who are trying to justify this kind of behavior. And then there's another group, and I, I'm not sure at the moment how big that group is, but I think that there is definitely, because I've heard from people in this group, by the way, these are people who are the what you might call the silent majority. And these are people who are actually pro-vaccine. Of A lot of them, I've heard from people already who have been vaccinated but who are quietly and staunchly opposed to what's going on right now with teachers because they recognize that there's a difference here, that a line has been crossed. And, and I think that there is a the bubbling beneath the surface. I think you might find 
that there's a lot more people who are just not saying anything, but who are quietly very uncomfortable about what this government has done here. And I suspect that that, that, un, that discomfort will only get worse. Now, the real danger here is that I, I can see this already, that this mandate will just keep expanding. Once the ring of power has been wielded, then, then it's just a whole lot easier to start justifying it. Well, look, we've already done it for teachers. Uh, let's do it for this sector. I've already done it for teachers and that sector. Let's do it for this sector as well. Let's demand everyone has to have a vaccine. Otherwise, you're not allowed out of your house. That, that's, now, that may, we may not get to that stage in New Zealand, but the risk of that happening is now a lot worse, is a lot greater. It really is. Because once you open the door, you're already halfway there. The only way to stop that, as I said, is to have a moral compass which keeps the door firmly shut and says, no, that is not how moral governance is done. Let me just finish up with a couple of points. And one of them I want to finish up with is actually a social media post, a very good one that was made a couple of days ago by a good friend of mine who is actually a PhD in ethics. And I won't mention his name because I'm not sure if he wants to mention his name, but he's a good man and a really solid ethicist and a very, very sharp mind. And he said this, he asked a series of questions on his social media feed, and this is what he said. Is it permissible, or I guess, do you think it would be permissible? <laughs> is it permissible to perform medical experiments on people without their consent if it would mean that we could develop a cure for a disease that killed millions faster than it would have if we had to go through standard ethical procedures involving, conce uh, involving consent. So in other words, there's a very serious crisis. Millions of people will die. So it's pretty extreme, right? Millions of people will die, this is, which is not even what will happen with COVID, but millions of people will die if, if we go through the normal consent procedure. So, so let's just conduct the experiments without consent. Number two question. Is it permissible for the Department of Health to require you to give blood regularly to ensure that there is not a shortage of available blood? Number three, would it be morally permissible for public health officials to medicate you and remove one of your kidneys, so I won't kill you, without your consent if there was a shortage of viable organs for people who needed them? And by the way, there is a serious shortage of organs for people who need them. There is a very serious shortage of donor organs available for people who are in need of those things. And then he goes on to say this, if you said no to any of the above questions, Guess what? You have rejected the principle that a person's right to not be subject to medical treatment without their consent can be overridden when public health officials judge that many lives will be saved by people undergoing that treatment. And I would add one little thing to that, those three examples. Imagine if in all three of those situations, the state said, if you don't submit, if you don't consent to doing any one of these three things, we will sack you. You will lose your job. Would we think that was moral? Now, if you have said no, you shouldn't be able to do this in any of these other situations, then I think you've, you've, got, to, you've got to really think hard about why you would think then it would be okay to do this with teachers right now in this pandemic. And you've got to find a really solid piece of moral reasoning that would justify why that difference would exist. Because remember, in all three of these situations, well, yeah, certainly they're life-saving, but at least two of the three, you're in a situation, and the first one in particular, a situation of great crisis, where lives are at stake based on what happens. A serious number of lives.
So, so why would you think it would be okay in one setting and not in the other? It's something that we should all be contemplating. This is, this is, by the way, this is one of the moral reasoning processes that I regularly engage in and have been throughout this pandemic is stopping and saying, okay, how would I feel if this was in this particular situation? And, and, and constantly trying to check the morality or, or, you know, the moral norms, the principles, you know, against those first principles. I talked about this the other day and consistently checking, you know, context and developments against those kinds of things. I might in a future episode, by the way, respond specifically to a meme that I've seen flying around in the last day or so, actually, trying to compare this with uh, mandates against drunk driving and against speeding in cars. And I'll explain why that is just not a strong analogy at all. That doesn't hold in this case. That's, that's a story, another story for another day. Uh, people might respond and say, but Brendan, this is a crisis. We're in a crisis. We need to do this because we're in a crisis. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, we're in a crisis. Things are different. To which I would say two important points. Number one, perspective, perspective, perspective. Again, I'll say it again. Perspective, perspective, perspective. This COVID-19 pandemic is not like polio. It is not like smallpox. It is not the bubonic plague. It is not like the other, it doesn't even rate in the top 10 pandemics. This is a, a, a very survivable illness. Now, hear me out because I know what's going to happen. Some people are going to listen to this and they're going to go, oh, is he saying that COVID's a joke? Is he a conspiracy theorist who thinks that COVID's not a threat? No, there is a threat associated with COVID. Absolutely. COVID is not just another flu. I'm not in that camp at all. But just because it's not another flu, it doesn't mean that's, that it's the bubonic plague. It's not. Now, I'm not saying you want it and you want to take that risk. And even if you account for long COVID, 95 out of 100 people who get this will not get long COVID. It's only about 5% for the elderly. In fact, I think the general rate for people under the age of 60 for long COVID is about 2%. So what? it's even higher. 98 out of every 100 who get it will not get long COVID. This is not a pandemic like other pandemics have been. You've got to put it in its proper context. This is so important. Perspective, perspective, perspective. Hospitalization rates are very low. The vast majority of people who get COVID do not end up in a hospital. I think it's between 1% and 5% end up in hospital. So again, between 95 and 99% of people who get this do not get hospitalized. This is important perspective. This is not to downplay the seriousness or the risks that are involved here, but this is just to get some perspective on this. This is really important because without that perspective, we start, we, we start going off reservation big time because we start to find ourselves in a state of unjustified panic and fear that is not warranted by the situation that we find ourselves in. And I know it's hard to break those shackles right now because we've been under this state of siege for so long now. We're about to hit our third year. And it has a very debilitating effect on our ability to sort of perhaps reason and think through this rationally, especially when you're just faced with a constant slew of media fixation on who's got it, how many cases, just constant. Every day, 1 p.m. press conferences, what's going to happen? What alert levels are we in? We have been pulled into 
a state of fixation along with a pandemic here. And I think it's important to remember that perspective really matters. Again, let me say it clearly, just in case someone tries to falsely accuse me of this, I am not trying to belittle the, the threats that do exist here, because there are threats here. But gosh, we need to put them in perspective. We really, really do. Number two, and this is really important, is a crisis is precisely the moment in which conscience and a well-formed conscience matters most. Whether it's a personal crisis or a communal crisis like we're going through right now, this is where a well-formed moral compass is just absolutely essential because in a crisis, the first thing that happens is, as a general norm, is rational judgment will go right out the window and you will, and fear will take over. And we don't think properly through our actions and we start doing things that we would not normally do if we weren't in a state of crisis because our thinking has been corrupted by the fear, the concern, the stress of the situation. So it is more important than ever. It's very easy to do moral things when there is no cost and no threat involved in doing those moral things. It's a lot harder under a state of crisis. But here's the thing. Throughout history, it has never, ever been a good thing as a general rule. It's never been a good thing when citizens just surrender their moral conscience over to the edicts of the state. See, we're all sitting here at the moment optimistically assuming and hoping that when this crisis is all over, then these powers will just stop being wielded. There's no guarantee of that. I hope that does happen, but there's no guarantee of that. And in fact, the lesson from history is that that might not happen. And I think why we're a little bit um, uh, ignorant to that fact is that we've lived so many decades now where we haven't had any sort of extreme totalitarian threat. We've got very used to the fact that governments have generally conducted themselves in ways that haven't violated these principles because there hasn't been any great crisis that's caused that to happen, generally speaking. But that's all changed now. And so because we haven't sort of seen recent examples where things can go off the rails, we, if, we, if we're not a student of history, then we, then we can be a little bit um, unaware of how easily the ring of power corrupts and how dangerous that corruption is. Right now, we are in a state of crisis. And so it is right now, in this moment, more important than ever that we have a well-functioning moral compass that is pointing us towards true north and not somewhere else. This is why in the last week or two, one of the decisions I've made is that I want to come out the other side of this pandemic whenever that ends. And by the way, this could be several years before we're out of this. I think a lot of people are just thinking, oh, well, everyone will get vaccinated and by Christmas we'll be done. We'll just force everyone to get vaccinated. Christmas time comes around, everyone's vaccinated, we're out of it. No more restrictions, no more COVID. Certainly uh, the chatter I'm hearing from people, a lot of people, not everyone, but I'm, I'm certainly hearing that from a lot of, a lot of quarters. As a friend of mine said to me the other day, uh, what happens when they run out of unvaccinated people to blame this on and to force into a vaccination and we're still grappling with this? What happens then? So one of the decisions that I've made is that I want to come out the other side of this pandemic with my moral integrity still intact. 
And that means for me, not compromising where I know there is an important moral truth at stake that should not be compromised. And what that means is I've had to lean into and accept the hard reality that I will be, I'll have stones thrown at me, <laughs> you know, I, I will be ridiculed at times. I will be chastised at times. I may even lose people who were previously okay with me. I, I don't suspect I'll lose any close friends because generally I've, I'm in a good circle of people, close friends, who also have a good sound functioning moral compass and don't allow things like this to, to drive wedges. But I have to accept that there are people sort of beyond that who might pull away from me. I might lose mana in the eyes of some people. I've come to the conclusion that it is far more important to maintain and to live truthfully, to live goodness, than it is to simply cave under social pressure and then come out the other side of a situation and have this huge regret and carry a great burden of thinking, my gosh, why didn't I hold the line? And I say that with absolute humility. I'm not trying to make myself out to be some sort of superhero here. I'm not. This is really hard. It's really hard, and I feel the weight of this every day. Uh, one thing I can tell you is that I also you have to really fight hard to maintain humility in all of this. You, know, you don't want to just get into sheer bloody-minded stubbornness. Uh, you've got to accept that there are moments when you're going to be wrong. But one thing I know is this, that even if the strategy around vac this vaccine strategy and forcing everyone to do it actually works and produces the outcome you want, the forcing, what we're doing right now, will still have been immoral. That won't have changed. The outcome doesn't change that fact. And so for me, there is no quarter that can be given on this. Because what are we left with? Well, we're left with uh, the ring of power, really, aren't we? And uh, a wielding of that ring of power wherever we see fit because we believe we can get a good outcome. That's not for me. So there you go. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Dispatches. I hope you've enjoyed it, or at least if you haven't necessarily agreed with everything, that you've got something now to mull over and think a bit more deeply about. Don't forget, if you're not already a subscriber, hit that little follow or subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on right now. And if you want those extra episodes of the podcast every single week, those exclusive patron-only episodes, become a supporter of Left Foot Media with $5 or more at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia, link in the show notes, and you will receive exclusive access to those extra four or five episodes of the podcast every single month. Remember, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. I'll see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches. Mm -hmm.